This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. You will never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Hello, and welcome to Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast live from the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Stephen Kent. Joining me today in the co-host chair is Robbie Suave, associate editor of Reason Magazine. Robbie, welcome to Beltway Banthas. Great to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you uh, kind of as my rotating co-host this week. It's about time. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Yeah, I, I feel like... Um, uh, you and uh, boss man Nick Gillespie at Reason are like the two people who I've accidentally ghosted the most on uh, Beltway Banthas. Where I'm like, yes, I want to have you on the show, and then I, I have not been able to make it happen. Uh, and that is my bad. It's nice to finally make it happen with you today. Um, you know, for people listening, this is the first episode of a new format uh, in which we will really have two co-hosts of every episode, um, but the second chair outside of my own will just be a new person every time trying to wing it on the show format and pretend like they know what is going on. Uh, So Robbie is here to help me do that today. Robbie, you've been a busy, busy man. You've kind of taken, not the year off, but you've been on like sabbatical as a a journalist uh, because you're working on a book. Yep. Uh, my book is uh, Panic Attack, um, Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. It will be out in June. Uh, it's about the climate of uh, activism. Uh, I interviewed a lot of people having to do uh, with the Me Too movement, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, the Women's March, uh, the kind of just activist movements that have come t- into being in the Trump years, paying special attention to some of the feuds on campuses involving free speech, and due process and political correctness, identity politics, that kind of thing. So I, I wanted to ask you because I've written a book proposal. Nice. Uh, it is a beautiful, beautiful seven-page book proposal about the politics of Star Wars. Uh, what, what was your, like, your process like for getting a book started? Did you like sell your idea to somebody first? What was kind of it like for you trying to write a book? Because this is the first time attempt by Yep, you. this is my first, uh, first book. So I, it was... Uh, it was helpful to me. An agent came to me, uh, having read a lot of my work, and yeah. said, uh, there should be a book on this subject. You're the man to write it. Uh, I'll help you put together a proposal, and I'll pitch it to publishers. So that stuff uh, was all kind And then that's still a, that's a long process, yeah. trying to get everything agreed to and what exactly it'll be. So that was still no. So that would, it took a lot to finally get from there to writing the book. Um, but uh, but I, I, it, it, they, they came to me to do it, so that made it easy. That is really helpful that yeah. they actually just came to you to do it, you know, because I have this theory with my book. Uh, it's uh, how the force can fix America, and it's just kind of lessons learned from from doing this show, conversations I've had about the politics of Star Wars, and I feel like it's relevant. Like it's a, it, it would in theory be a pretty solid product with like a new Star Wars movie coming out year after year after year. Just kind of I got to get yeah. the timing right. I imagine there's a publisher out there for something. Probably. What's going to happen for you is somebody's going to hear this podcast, and they're going to go, oh, that's a great idea, and they're going to reach out to you. Seriously, that's what will happen. That's. Uh, I'm hoping that's what happens instead of, I thought you were going to say that someone's going to take my idea. <laughs> you can't take my idea. I have a timestamp on that damn book proposal. I'll come after you people. No, no. It's hard to do these things. You would do it right, and they know you will do it right. So nobody's going to rip you off. So, so did, do you like just like wake up every morning and just like – 
sit with your coffee and then start writing your book? What was like sabbatical and writing a book like? It uh, it's hard. You know, I'm a I'm a I, I write for the web mostly. Uh, you know, I respond to the news pretty quickly. Yeah. To yeah, kind of that you do it puts me to shame. <laughs> to step back and do a longer project where you you think about yeah. things and you and it's it's intense the kind of uh, reflecting and writing you're doing uh it was hard it, it took me a, a couple of weeks to really get into it to find my uh you know here are the hours of the day where i'm really productive and i get a lot done when are you productive uh probably the early afternoon and just very late at night i don't roll right out of bed and get to work i need okay. to i need to have a whole pot of coffee and then maybe take a nap and then come back to it okay yeah i think i think i'm the opposite like i'm usually like the most energized clear-headed and just ready to work at six in the morning, yeah, and it's uh, it's everywhere else where I just feel like I'm dying. Well, y- you kind of people are. Everyone says are going to be the more successful people. That the that the is there? Right, I've heard at four a.m. Is, is the average age of like the most uh, not average age average time of getting up for the super successful four a.m. You know, I feel like there is a choose your own article though for all that stuff. Like coffee will make you live longer. Yeah. Oh, a new study says coffee will kill you. <laughs> and I feel like I've seen pieces on that for both. Uh, nighttime people are geniuses. They right. just don't know it yet. Right. Or like the mo- I, I just like the ones that confirm my own lifestyle, right? People who stay up way too late, don't get enough sleep, uh, you don't plan their meals, have, have uh, their, their homes are messes. Those are the most successful people. Go good, good. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to hear that. Good. I, um, you mentioned responding to the news, and I, um, I, I feel like I like to write about the same things as you do. Uh, when I sort of see like outrage news cycles or controversies going on, I'm sort of drawn to the same sort of cultural topics as you. And you are so much better at responding to them. Uh, I think because you're a seasoned writer, uh, and I'm sort of an upstart. And I do all of my pieces at the Washington Examiner. You write for reason. And um, you always beat me to the punch, but you're always so right. And so I always feel like I'm just kind of like your plus one on a response to a Gillette uh, razor-shaving freakout. Um, and props for that. I think that's that's a great skill you've got there. It's nice even to have people agreeing with you, even if they're saying the same thing as you. It's, well, yeah, uh, I mean, you, know. you, you kind of are a minority voice on, on a lot of these kind of culture war issues. You know, I think people assume based on your beat, um, you know, again, kind of critiquing intersectionality and, and things on campus that, I don't know, I, I don't know that you're, that you're like a Ben Shapiro type mm-hmm. right-wing guy, but I mean, you usually kind of take side of the cultural left on most most issues. Right. I mean, I'm I'm a socially I'm a, progressive. I'm a liberal. <laughs> yeah, I, I really am a socially progressive person in most respects. Yeah, I, I often find I have no, you know, I, I have so few allies because uh, I, I I don't I am not I'm critical of some of the same kinds yeah. of things that a Ben Shapiro is critical of, but I don't agree with him on a whole host of issues. Um, but usually, people on the right tend to be. Relatively polite and accommodating. So many people on the left, unfortunately, even though I agree with them on so many things, yeah. you have to agree with them on everything, or you're no good to them. Which is kind of the thesis of my book. All right, and I think that's a pretty good time to transition to our main subject for today: uh, a not so phantom menace. The politics of Star Wars is always an opportunity to kind of look backwards and and reflect on these movies. And I guess in the 68 episodes we've done on this show. We've we've talked about Star Wars and trade, and we've talked about Star Wars and interventionism, but we haven't like just looked at Episode One as a whole and just sort of said what were the political messages of this movie. And you're a really big fan of Menace fans, so I thought it was kind of a good opportunity to do that. Absolutely, um, I love I love prequel contrarianism. I got to defend them. I love them. Uh, the movies they make me so happy. I, I I defend them on Twitter all the time, and I get hate for it, and I'll never stop because it's the truth. 
I love those movies. Yeah, you speak the truth, Robbie. Yes. Now, uh, we, we, we had first talked about having you on the show when Matt O'Brien of the Washington Post had written a wonk blog piece titled, Star Wars Episode One is really about President Trump. Is it? Um, I believe it's about the lessons of President Trump. Um, but he calls it now a prescient story about democracies and international order. Is it prescient? I mean, do you, do you think that, like, Star Wars Episode One it was a foreshadowing or a reflection, perhaps, on the past century? I mean, in a very broad sense, no. Because, no, it's a movie about Star Wars. It's a movie about, <laughs> it's a space uh, battle with uh, characters. It's not, it's not, no, it's not literally about Trump. It wasn't inspired by Trump. But there are a lot of lessons uh, we can take from it, I think, to current politics. I mean, the... Um, the sort of the way I guess trade issues um, animate people or people poorly understand them. I think actually, actually, it's almost meta in a sense. The way because episode one took some criticism uh, of being uh, like, oh, with trade, who cares about that? I'm not interested in this. I don't understand it. It, it was it was almost too complicated for some people, yeah. and that reminds me today of how we talk about trade issues like in the media like you know Donald Trump is talking about trade issues in ways that I think yeah. make no sense and people don't understand the trade deficit and things like that because it's complicated back to actually trade is good trade makes us better off I'm for trade uh, but it's easy to kind of uh, kind of demo what, what is that that's complicated that's not it's not a culture issue it doesn't yeah, I mean, animate people, people always made fun of the opening scroll and I'm trying to remember back if it's like revisionist history you know we're like reviewers were making fun of the fact that like trade was like a big issue in the it, beginning or was it fa were fans really like making fun of the whole uh, issue of trade I mean there's so it? much Star Wars revisionism entirely I don't even I, know what history I is I just watched I, I remember watching and loving the movie which yeah. is what happened in every everything they said was bad about the movies I thought I remember everyone just loving when we actually watched them I, I mean I remember the exact same thing uh, Jar Jar did not d descend on public opinion until no, like that the, opinion until was, the internet really picked that up. opinion was forced on me I, yeah. I thought the character was perfectly fine until yeah. it was just beaten into me that I was supposed to hate this character or something yeah, um, yeah I, I don't it, it's 1999 I remember I saw the movie in theaters I would have been with parents but you know, I just I just feel like all of Star Wars, we have this inaccurate perception of how it was received. Like, I, I did this deep dive on Episode 5 reviews, and there was, like, criticism, like, very real criticism about the way, like, the big reveal in that movie was handled and that it was far from perfect. And, and now we just sort of, like, remember it as this perfect Star Wars right, movie. And right. it, it never got, like, just amazing. I remember movies. seeing uh, uh, Episode 1. I saw it in theaters a couple times, and I, we saw it for my birthday. I don't know what – when did it come out? It must have been my, like, like 12th birthday or somewhere around. Mm -hmm. I, was, I, I guess I was 11. I don't know. Somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, and we, yeah, but all my friends had already seen it except for one, and we were so like, oh, is he going to figure out that Amidala isn't actually really Amidala? And, uh, and <laughs> like, oh, he didn't guess it. Like, I remember being really into, you know, it was exciting, and it was cool, and it was, uh, so there's, there's just revisionism about it. Well, you know, so I guess one of the, the lessons of episode one is the issue of trade and when trade can become violent. Right. Um, we talk a lot in kind of libertarian land um, about the free exchange of goods between people and that it, it, it is like a, um, a deterrent to violence when people are able to trade freely um, and when nations are sort of in communication with each other trading goods. So they're more likely to then, you know, pillage each other or, or go to war. But it, it kind of puzzles me because all of 
episode one, two, and three in the end are sort of a critique, or George Lucas's version of a critique, of neoliberalism. So I feel like he doesn't agree with us, but like in theory, we sort of now look at episode one as like, it well, was this big endorsement of trade. Yeah, well, I think it was. I mean, the, 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 the shadowy behind-the-scenes forces of evil are manipulating uh, or are, are, are using uh, trade cynically right oh we're gonna we're gonna impose trade barriers mm-hmm. and and they're that's like a behind the scenes cover for the nefarious things they're doing so i don't there there can be no like trade is bad lesson from it right because because the bad people are blocking trade and the really bad people are cynically exploiting that so i think it does end up yeah and, being and pro- you know and and then so what i mean the the army of the trade federation is deployed for the purpose of sort of extracting right. resources and concessions from the Naboo. I guess I was never really clear what George Lucas was really saying about it at that time. And it kind of brought me to this piece that I read from the LA Times in, in 1999. Um, and this, again, like it's kind of like Time Machine, you know. It says, you know, the Matt O'Brien in the Washington Post said, you know, this movie is clearly about Trump. The LA Times in 1999 was talking about how this is you know, indicative of the Clinton era Hmm. Um, and that he was bringing in people to the administration. And I want to read this excerpt because it's, it's just sort of a very bizarro flashback. Um, I want to pull it up here. So it says on May 12th, at least a few diehard Star Wars fans, their fingers gently resting on their mouses or redial buttons must have looked up from their quest to advance tickets to see breaking news from the White House. Bill Clinton walked into a sunset. This is so romantic. Sunswept Rose Garden to put an exclamation point on the world's new economic order to replace Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin. Clinton reached out to Andrew Mellon, Douglas, Dylan, Donald Reagan lineage of Wall Street barons to show that the road to America's economic future lies on a different path, not through Main Street, but through Shanghai, through the broad boulevards of Berlin and crowded tunnels of Tokyo. His also, the uh, extradition of Larry Summers, a man whose resume of service in the upper echelons of the World Bank and Undersecretary uh, Treasury suggests that, you know, and he kind of goes on to say that, like, we're giving away American jobs, American prosperity, um, to sort of a new global international order. It's it's like this anti-globalist argument, and I don't quite understand exactly what this person is trying to say. The message of Star Wars is, because George Lucas, I think of him sort of as like an economic nationalist, like a person who really wants America to do well. I mean, what do you make of, of what well, I just cri- read? Criticisms here? of neoliberalism are always somewhat incoherent, Uh because, you know, I read a lot of academic sort of works and where neoliberalism is the most sort of scapegoated concept on the planet. Yeah. I mean, we're... I, our, last, like, our last episode was about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, so it's this boogeyman. It's this... It's just this uh, this uh, insidious evil for so many. Um, but it, But I almost... You know, sort of like West Wing era politics or something, which mm-hmm. I think are, are almost part and parcel with that, with a Clint, you know, Clintonian kind of time yeah. and, and neoliberal economics and all of that. Uh, and, and you see some of that in episode one with, you know, it's very, it's procedural and the, the, the Senate has all the, but we, maybe we could just overcome it if we do things like, like, like politics can still be worked Pat, out Padme somehow. in the office or Amidal in the office just being like, you know, but surely they'll listen to reason if, right, we, if we appeal right. to the Senate and Palpatine's like, no. 
you don't really know how this works. <laughs> right, right. And he's, right, and he's, you know, putting in place this plan to completely destroy this entire system. Uh, but there's, st- but it, it, it's a, it's a, it, it harkens back to a, to, I think, a, to a 90s kind of idea of politics where yeah. it's, where it's not so tribal and not, so, I mean, now we're all so cynical about politics. Like yeah. no one in politics is acting in good faith. We all know they're just, they, they're, they're totally doing it for whatever incentives face them. And no, no one is like a bill does not come to the floor and is not considered on its merits by anyone. You know, they're they're all they're all all know how they're all going to vote on everything. They're a bunch of squabbling corrupt delegates, right? But it's uh, yeah, but it, it's uh, but it's but that's obvious to everyone, right? Yeah. No one has any. Uh, There's illusion. no one who has like a high-minded opinion, right? No one like, thinks right. that politics can just improve our lives, right? They're, and 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 episode one, like sort of, I think the '90s was the last period of time where where people were still on a wide basis had this view that that things are bad in government but they can be improved and they yeah. can be in, be fixed and there was which is on, very much the honor, political maybe honor in the whole thing right there are some good people and there are some bad people and we'll figure it out and yeah. if we just change things or we we would like the right people better people our people the system will be improved and that and and palpatine is yeah. is just about to exploit that system for 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 what comes after that. I think, I think it comes down to, like, in this conclusion um, from the writer in the LA Times, he says, America is no longer the sole master of its economic destiny. Yet the fact is the latest Star Wars sequel captures the natural zeitgeist as it did the original. Like, I, I think I, I think this person in 1999 is, is saying, like, this movie is about um, sort of economies now leaving the control of, like, worlds, like Naboo not having control of its own its own destiny to trade or have its own economy like these. I think it's about mega national corporations. I mean, that's clearly what George Lucas was trying to get at. Well, and you see, you start to see the people. So Naboo seems like a fairly affluent society, yeah. or at least what we see of it. We mostly see the palace and well, the we know they're rich from plasma. They have the <laughs> they have the plasma trade, right? Yeah. Right. It, it's an affluent, wealthy. You know, maybe the, the the maybe Gungan society isn't quite as nice, although it seems nice for Gungans, yeah. I guess. Uh, but then we also see, uh, you know, we see and we see Coruscant is opulent, but we see that there, you know, there's still slavery and other I, parts that aren't ostensibly under the control of the Republic, I guess. Yeah. But are, are, are sort of, co- I mean, it's space travel. It's it's coexisting. It's neighbors to 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 the Republic, uh, to like Tatooine, yeah. and they're still they haven't. Well, what has this this you know liberal democratic order done for the slave people on Tatooine? Very little, clearly. clearly. And that's kind yeah. of a criticism, actually, that we see that this global neoliberalism you know, how has this helped the the white working class in rural west virginia you know mm-hmm. that that kind of well what about me i haven't profited from this um so the, that that criticism uh, of the system which i think uh phantom menace starts to starts to in a, in a very in a very interesting way starts to show some of those other settings i feel like i feel like the 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 champions of neoliberalism would be, always be the ones that go you know like well, yeah, I mean, sure, like the South Sudan, you know, hasn't been like changed by neoliberalism, but like at least they have, I don't know, shoes or, or right. smartphones. I feel like I'm going to get protested in my next appearance if I say, well, life is not that bad for the Tatooine slaves, although it, it is, doesn't seem, I wonder, from I, the ones we see, it's not, it's not the most horrible enslaved conditions <laughs> that have ever appeared in media. Can I get away with saying that? I don't. They I have, have their own home, like separately no from, idea. I'm so, I'm, I'm, I have no idea. No, well, I've gone this far, so I might as well not stop. No, but, I, uh, I always. I, actually, I wonder what Tatooine was like in, in years past and where Tatooine is 
you know, like a hundred years before we finally see it in the Phantom Menace, like have they made like big leaps and bounds or has this always been just like this stagnant sort of sand hut situation? Yeah. I mean, for uh, they have robots and, and droids running around. Like I kind of wonder with the, the backdrop of Phantom Menace, like when did certain technologies become luxury? You know, like when did you start to see droid servants in the home? Uh, when was that normal? I don't know. I, I, old Republic, uh, old Republic years, we would see droids too. Yeah. Um, but they were always like sh- uh, cleaner, brighter, uh, smarter than the ones. Anakin, that Anakin can build his own, right? He's yeah. got a, <laughs> he's got a droid in every sand hut. You know that should be the the, the policy of which. Uh, you have to assume he was making his own droid because they couldn't afford one. They couldn't, they couldn't afford, afford like a home yeah. service droid for them yeah. to actually use themselves. Um, but no, I so. You know, it's it's this sort of like this fear of loss in a way that you you see playing out in 1999, where people see like the globalizing economy is like this is going to be disruptive. Yeah. And George Lucas, I guess, at this time was seeing sort of the same thing, and we're now seeing that play out in 2018. It's taken like nearly two decades of time to kind of reach the Trump era, where people are really mad about it. It's it's sweeping Europe. Um, it is sweeping U.S. politics all of a sudden. So, yeah. Brexit. I I, it, this this is relevant now. Like the entire message or ethos of Episode One is more relevant than it was, I think, even then. Yeah, or not not yeah not wanting to be part of some global order for 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 reasons either perceived or legitimate or not um, is so much the political theme of the Trump years. Of saying that this this has failed us and we don't want to be part of it. There, I mean, there's there's sort of a new um, new wave of romanticism about like the nation state, and it has to do a lot with like you yeah. mentioned Brexit and sort of leaving EU. And this would get us more into Episode Two territory and yeah. the separatists, but that's what's simmering and, and brewing yeah. uh, in Episode One, which is what we are now taken by. Is I think people have become disenchanted with the idea of being a community of nations, and everyone is wanting to turn inward. Yeah, yeah, the the um is sort of the uh you know the end of of the the, the or that nothing nothing can come after this because we've advanced to the to the to the we, this is the best there is the you know global sort of uh, or intergalactic uh, capitalism and democracy is so great and and it it, it can't be uh, you know this is the the Fukuyama uh, argument Francis Fukuyama yeah. uh, argument that uh, that uh, it's so perfect. Um, it will be in perpetuity because there's no competing sort of sort of political economic system, um, which was uh, and with that theory came out in the '90s as well. And uh, and and Phantom Menace has some of those, but but there are there can be seeds of its own destruction planted in the system if people, um, for good or for evil, start to don't recognize the benefits it has for their own lives or the elites become uninterested in persuading people that this system does benefit them. Maybe it benefits other people a whole lot, but it benefits you too. And, and this is where I just get confused about what George Lucas's motives might've been, because if the movie was sort of raising like a red flag or whatever on all these issues, sort of the, the globalization of the world, I would, I would assume that George Lucas would be someone who would be in favor of trade. Right. Like he's someone who's like bemoaning Trump's, you know, tariffs right now, which is, this is why like the Washington Post piece came about was it was all about, you know, Trump is taking us back to the thirties with his approach to tariffs. It's like tit for tat. Um, the backdrop of the op-ed was, you know, Trump is trying to put tariffs on Canada to extract economic concessions from them. 
And it's it's the kind of thing that leads to to military conflict. I'm like, well, are you suggesting we're going to invade Canada or blockade Canada? He does Canada? seem to have some. He embeds anti elitism uh, uh, messages uh, in those movies. I mean, each of the prequels show the Jedi in a very uh, humbling light. High uh, minded Jedi, uh, right? He, I mean, he's very that the idea that they should just be they get to decide who's right and who's wrong and. And they're beyond reproach. I mean, he, which is an idea you would get from yeah. the original movies, because the Jedi are gone. These are these were the superheroes. These were the great guys, and they they all got killed, and it's so sad. And oh, they're they're being reborn in the form of Luke, and this is great. But then in the prequels, George Lucas is interested in saying, no, they were blind to a to a lot to really glaring problems, a glaring problem that like lived like literally next door in the in the scheme of things that they couldn't. And, even are, you, see. and are you referencing slavery in that issue? No, or? no, I mean the Palpatine. They, oh, I mean, okay. they couldn't see yeah. the. Well, the, I, I mentioned that because I was I was on the Blaze TV yesterday with Andrew Heaton, and you know he he wanted to bring this up about the Jedi and slavery and. Really, how they they sort of roll into this world, they or they they end up stranded on the world, and Qui Gon has this sort of very Zen mentality about well, it's a world of slavery, it's law here, um, and he's not he's not phased by it, he's not unsettled by it at all. He sort of just views it as like it's the affairs of this world. We're not meant to meddle in this. And you just kind of again, I think maybe from the George Lucas mindset, where he passively was saying like the Jedi were not like completely admirable, like they really just turned a blind eye to injustice. Um, if it was just the way of things, they acted as if slavery on Tatooine was just the way of things. Yeah. Why don't they try to liberate worlds? Like, he doesn't. He doesn't even work very hard to to get Anakin and his mother. He was like, oh, I can only get Anakin. Okay. That's I would be, right. I would be stealing um, Andrew Heaton's joke. <laughs> he said, he said, Coruscant seems wealthy enough that Qui Gon and Obi Wan could have gotten back to the world, passed around a hat of people to donate to liberate <laughs> Shmi. You know, just pass a hat around and oh wow, we have five five coins. We can go yeah. back and get her. Yeah, in in, no. in, in all their wisdom no. that might have foreseen that that could have uh, prevented some bad things from happening down there. You know, but, if, but they are they're blind to things or they're disinterested. But they're my, supposed to be disinterested, God. right? Imagine if they had gone back and liberated Anakin's mother. From just put slavery. her in some nice apartment in Coruscant. Yeah, and visit her now and then. Yeah, just get her out of slavery. How hard would that have been? In fact, it would have been 100%. Well, actually, so Anakin said they're implanted with chips that will explode, I think. He said, yeah, and if we leave the planet, then boom, we explode. (laughs) It's a battle royale sort of situation where your your collar goes off. Yeah, he's very specific about that. So so he probably had to have his, like, a chip deactivator or something like that. But... I don't know. Foresight of the You'd Jedi. The like, Jedi do you think? Do you think kids will be torn up um, over the loss of their parents? But I guess the fact of the matter is they've been doing this for so long that Anakin is right. an outlier. Most kids move on from their parents and their families, but he's older, and that was the right. whole concern. Right. He's attached to stuff. Right, and he had a he had a he he had a darkness inside, a, a, an anger or a sadness uh, that the Jedi are supposed to to be able to shed. That's why you know Yoda didn't want him. It was too late. He's too. His emotions, I think, were were already. That's what I read in that in the the sort of debate over whether to teach Anakin or not was that his his sort of emotional uh, qualities had already developed to some almost dangerous. Yeah, because normally they're like scouting out babies and toddlers yeah, yeah. who don't remember their parents too yeah. much. You know, I, I I guess I never really thought deeply about the whole issue of like he's too old and it really is just about like he will he will have grudges he'll have memories of yeah. past values that he had when they're used to bringing in clean yeah. slates 
God, they should have liberated Shmi. But it would have been so easy. But Lucas, but Lucas, I think, is criticizing this uh, this idea. Yeah. Uh, and and actually, in in, in, in the latest it. movie, they 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 talk. Luke talks a lot about whether uh, whether the Jedi strategy of of being emotionless and and only reacting to restore balance is a good thing, and he's very critical of it in uh, in uh, uh, the Last Jedi. Um, you, know, you know, the Sith are are uh, are you know impulsive and driven by emotion and driven by a, a lot of uh, negative uh, emotions. But then, almost the Jedi aren't almost their opposites because it's not like the, the the Sith are driven by these negative emotions, rage and anger. But the Jedi are not driven by positive emotion. Almost they're supposed to be driven by like like Zen, like neg- neutral emotion, uh, which I always find interesting. Does that mean that the Jedi? Does that mean that the Jedi would be here, like at Liberty Con? Like, they're the squishy just, moderates. Yeah. Just, well, does that mean like they're like the squishy moderates, or like I mean, honestly, when I think of the libertarian movement, I usually uh, think of of a little bit of callousness. I mean, we, we're very like optimistic yeah. people in general, but um, <laughs> I don't want to name her, but I, a prominent libertarian was like, you know, I feel like a lot of people in this movement are serial killers. Like they don't, <laughs> they, they they like they lack like a certain amount of emotion. Um, and connection to people because I don't know, just things are supposed to be good and you're supposed to be happy. I mean, look around at you at all the things that you have. And I, I kind of wonder if that, if that connects a little bit to the Jedi's aloofness, like that there's an aloofness in their order. There's an, uh, an aloofness sort of in our movement as well. Totally. I mean, um, that I, you have to engage with. Well, I think everyone just shrugged when it, when they were told, yeah, the Jedi were masterminding a coup to overthrow uh, the Republic because yeah. they're, you know, they're the generals of our armies on all these worlds and they're totally out of touch with the people. I mean, we don't, unfortunately, I, I wish there was more, like, we got to see what, you know, the common sort of residents of the, of what became the Empire thought of this, yeah. the shifting political situation. We don't get to see a lot of that. But presumably they're they're willing to go along with or believe that the Jedi were or we see we see the senators at least right yeah. they go along with it because because uh, the Jedi didn't have a lot of, uh, of rapport with those people and they were leading all these these unpopular wars on all sorts of different planets and uh, and and they didn't have and in a very in their defense way. I feel like they got roped into it though like they, yeah. didn't, they didn't want to be well, I mean, this was Palestine's manipulation. But, you know, I, I mean, you're at, you're at Reason Magazine, kind of like Reason Magazine, like just, um, I, I think as a statement, it's basically like, we accept reason where the other side would be emotion, like emotion, right? Like that's the struggle. That's the, that is the, the Jedi versus Sith struggle and those two sort of, uh, those two sort of competing factors. Yeah. I, I mean, Star Wars does not present a very good, uh, a hope for the eventual triumph of, of uh, facts over uh, over emotion. Um, I'm a dystopic person. I mean, I yeah. I don't think things end well for humanity. Like I I'm supposed to be like an optimistic futurist, but I, I'm actually pretty grim. <laughs> really? I see. I'm yeah. optimistic, and I'm just I'm never optimistic that our political or governmental um the that aspect of of our of our country will improve. Yeah. I mean, I'm I we're gonna live longer. We're gonna have better medicine. Probably we're probably going to be wealthier. I, I think most things are getting better what, over time. But what but, rots under the surface. Right. Well, our know. politics are deeply rotten under the surface. That <laughs> I, I would agree with. So in The Phantom Menace, um, there is a actual Phantom Menace, thus the name. Uh, Palpatine is playing both sides. It's right. Sidious. Uh, who is the Phantom Menace in uh, the real world? Oh, that's a, that's a, uh, un, un, I think unlike Star Wars, I don't think there's an easy answer. I don't think there's an obvious um, shadowy figure behind the, uh, behind the, uh, curtain. 
so I, now, uh, many people who oppose Trump are always trying to point to some shadowy cabal. They say, I mean, lately it's been the Vladimir Putin mm -hmm. is is the phantom menace of our of our time. Is the one pulling all these all these threads and all these strings. Uh, unfortunately, and I'm always criticizing this narrative, even though I'm very critical of Trump, because I actually think Trump and Lindsey Graham and and Jeff Sessions and everyone else in the whoever else you want to name in the Republican orbit are actually operating under pretty normal political considerations. I, yeah. I, I mean, Trump is. I'm not going to, to like defend his things, re Russia, but I don't think I don't think he's literally a Manchurian candidate. Well, so uh, I don't so think I have he's under... the apprentice of the of the of the Sith Lord uh, oh, man, across but, the Atlantic. But man, does like the evidence, you know, just kind of keep pointing in those directions. I, by evidence, I, I mean um, I don't know uh, what's like one short of evidence. You know, the uh, the the signs. Yeah. You know, this like the the fingerprints. Well, I'll, have, be, I'll, I'll be the fool if it turns out that no, it really is. He he's. He's financially or in some other ways like deeply compromised by uh, by Putin. Then this will be a, a much more apt metaphor to. Uh, well, so I have I have, and so this is maybe will be what we haggle over. I have under my question: Who is the Phantom Menace? I have well Putin because because, <laughs> and I'm going to try to plot to play this out. So you know, if you sort of buy the narrative about what is going on, I mean, he is basically uh, funding and funneling Russian money and efforts towards. Um, brewing conflict on all sides of the globe. He's trying to, I mean, he actually, the Russians send money to Texas secessionist groups um, and try to, to get that sort of resentment boiling. They're involved uh, in Brexit in some way. They're involved in Europe funding the right-wing nationalist groups. And when it comes to the U.S. politics, they are also trying to sort of incite rage on the far left as well. And if you look at the, the president, there's this idea that, you know, there was a lot of collusion going on behind the scenes, that Paul Manafort and everything were taking some of their cues on foreign policy from Vladimir Putin. And he's sort of he's sort of moving these these other players around the board so that he can do what? I don't know what Vladimir Putin, you know, what his big plan is. Does he really want to just like take back most of Eastern Europe? But it does seem to me that he's not so phantom. We can see what he is doing. But Russia, is, uh, they, they play all sides. And I think if you're the phantom menace in the context of Star Wars, you're the person who's playing all sides against each other. Well, nothing you said there is wrong. I mean, I, I certainly agree that uh, Putin is trying to exert influence in all those ways. Um, I just, I think, particularly regarding Trump, um, everything Trump does just makes sense to Trump anyway. Yeah. Uh, he he responds positively to anyone who flatters him. Like, he won't say David Duke is a bad guy. It's because David Duke said nice things about Trump. It's That's the only reason. He he operates under simple, you're, you're, you say nice things about me, I'm positive towards you. This is the disposition of a reality this TV is, this star. This is why Rand Paul's getting us everything that we want on foreign <laughs> policy. Right. Well, actually, right. We're making, uh, we, we laugh, but we're making, foreign policy is the area where I have the least disagreements with Trump, even clumsy yeah. and, and sort of heavy-handed. And it's because that Mr. Paul, you know, goes into bases himself, you I, know, playing nice with him. But, but, you know, it's that's sometimes that's what you've got to do in, in this in this business. I but guess, I, I, do, I do disagree with the idea that Russia's uh, sort of influence was uniquely important in getting mm -hmm. us Trump. I don't, sure. I mean, I, I don't the, think that's the, big the issue. existing uh, communications, I mean, the, the amount of rallying for Trump 
in sort of traditional, typical conservative news media outlets. It was, I mean, that, that, is, that was full-throated cheerleading for Trump. Uh, and that's the way most of the kind of people who vote for Trump get their news. So it's just it just seems very unlikely to me that that was that was the very important thing. It seems very unlikely to me that like sort of weird Facebook group manipulation had any yeah. significant thing to do with anything. You know, I, I think it just kind of comes down to in game. You know, my my stepmother is Latvian, so she is just this uh, individual that is is deeply suspicious of you know Russia's military intentions that they really want to spread. Uh, back across that region. Uh, and I, I just sort of wonder, you know, if, if he is just trying to create so much conflict and discord across the world that he can sort of make the moves that he wants unchecked. Um, and I, I do think that like that makes him currently like the phantom menace of, of our current world. I can't think of another person who would possibly be who's just trying to tear down the liberal democratic order and replace it with something different. Well, what might give us hope that we can avoid uh, the fate of the Republic? Um, oh, jeez. Excuse me. Uh, what, what might be giving us hope, though, that we can avoid the fate of the Republic is that uh, un, in, in the movies, the, the, the Phantom Menace, Palpatine is truly hidden. No one knows what, the, what his agenda is, the extent of his, of his powers and his influence until, yeah. the, ver- until it is the very end, it is too late until, until his own... Uh, his own disciple, you know, try briefly considers betraying him, yeah. and that blows up in their faces. We, like you, you just called it as Putin. We're talking about Putin all the time. Putin is not is not operating behind the scenes. You not know, millions of people are calling him out as the puppet master. I think so. that's I think that's why I decided to call this episode a not so phantom menace. <laughs> right. So maybe we can avoid uh, the fate of the Galactic Senate uh, and so on because we uh, we are enemy. Uh, we we do know who it is. Yeah. Well, I, I'm really glad that we got to do this episode together because you are a pretty hardcore prequel backer. Yes. Um, I, I wanted to kind of give you a moment to, to share, you. you know, like what is it that you love so much about those movies? I know episode three remains your favorite Star Wars yep. movie of all time. Episode three um, is my favorite. We're aligned in that. That's my second favorite movie. I have a very favorable opinion of it. But like, you know, why are you still here after all these years kind of staking out that ground? You know, and I rewatch them from time to time, and and I never waver in this opinion. They are they are sophisticated and complicated in the sort of the storyline in the, in the political story. It's a it's a it, to me it's such an interesting uh, story of the the corruption of democratic norms, and there's a lot going on beneath the surface. I mean, Palpatine, what he's doing to rise to power, I think is really interesting and is a great story. And there's so many awesome dramatic moment i mean even episode one the most maligned of all of them and when darth maul appears in the in the in the palace and then Mm -hmm. the music starts playing and they fight i mean that is a great scene you can still watch it today it's so awesome in the music and the the opening of those doors and the and the zoom in on darth maul in there star wars lacks a lot of really punchy moments like that right now i think where where you just feel like villain Boom! Yes. Like this is going to be bad. And the new ones are very yeah. well acted. You know, I, I I I don't think people's criticisms that some of the romantic dialogue in the prequels. I like. I agree. Obviously, it could have been improved. But, uh, You're but the so new ones beautiful. are <laughs> only because I'm so in love. <laughs> I just hate Sandman. I just hate it. Um, <laughs> the new the new ones are so well made and so well acted, and they look great. Uh, yeah, but they're they're a little. Uh, the prequels have the more complex story to me and i and that's what i really appreciate they had they had such heart and i think 
I, I originally was a, a booster of the Disney era of Star Wars, pretty ex- excited and optimistic about it, but I am missing the intention of the maker. Yeah. I, I, you know, yeah. again, like, you know, George Lucas, I, again, I don't have to agree with his worldview. Like, I don't care what kind of story he wants to tell. It just felt like the story had direction. It had focus. And I just don't know what the focus is anymore. Um, there's And there's nothing you really miss. when If, if you watch that movie, the, the new ones, you get everything. Like, Attack of the Clones, you really have to watch twice to really yeah. understand exactly what's going on. And I guess a lot of people didn't like that about it, but I actually, I liked that. You know, the second time I watched it, I'm like, okay, this is how, this is why it's happening this way. This is who's paying off who. This is what the 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 kind of, uh, this is why it's happening this way. This is the strategy yeah. going on of, of the bad guys. And that's what, the prequels have a lot of that that yeah, I really Oh appreciate. my gosh, yeah, the, the originals do not have any of that. The, ori- um, the epi- originals episode, don't have... Episode 2, in many ways, is is like a, a spy, sort of like sleuth movie. Yeah. Uh, with Obi-Wan yeah. sort of playing that yeah, detective exactly. role. It can, be, it can be interesting at times. Um, yeah, no, I, I I just love your your enthusiasm for those movies. I know, I take a lot, and my brother, uh, you know, who... who He's three years younger than me, you know, watched all these movies with me growing up. He has the exact same opinions on all these. So he, he'll, he'll come on my Facebook wall and rant that I'm right every time I post these opinions. And uh, so I have, I have one defender at least. Very edgy. Well, we are here today with Robbie Suave, the associate editor at Reason. He's the author of Young Radicals in the Age of Trump. Panic Attack actually is the main title. That's the subtitle. Uh, we'll be back with another segment here. Bantha Fodder. Stay with us. All right, and we are back, and I want to come to you with a message about how you can support Beltway Banthas on Patreon. Uh, Patreon is a place where you can donate to podcasts and uh, support the creative projects of uh, people whose work you're enjoying. Beltway Banthas is on Patreon, and you can become a patron by going to www.patreon.com slash Banthas. And I want to thank some of the people who uh, give to us already and help keep this show afloat. Having a podcast is not inexpensive. We've been doing this now for two years, uh, and these people make it possible. So thank you so much to Andrew Dodson, Andrew Siener, BJ Smith, Cheston Lee, Connie Shee, Isaiah Leslie, Jared Cantor, Jessica Shitara, Nathan Hartwig, Nick DiColandria, Sarah Smith, Sarah Strange, Sean Mahan, uh, a person named The Establishment, <laughs> and Tish Wells. Uh, thank you so much, all of you, for your support of Patreon. Um, you make this show uh, possible and what it is today. Uh, that brings us to our final segment of the show. It's legendary. It is Bantha Fodder, your opportunity to discuss and share anything that's on your mind, Star Wars, politics, or otherwise, um, uninterrupted and unabridged. Uh, Robbie Suave, why don't you uh, you kick us off today as our guest co-host? I'd love to hear what your bantha fodder is. Great. Uh, so the the Women's March uh, just took place uh, in many locations around the country, but in D.C., that's where uh, I'm located. Uh, it was sort of very mired in controversy uh, this year. Uh, a lot of groups pulled out of it. Um, uh, actually, the, the Democratic Party even pulled out of it. The Southern Poverty Law Center, the group that fights, uh, that, that publicizes uh, hate crimes and hate groups, they pulled out of it. Uh, all over this controversy over the organizers of it, uh, who uh, have too many uh, close associations with uh, Louis Farrakhan, who is the head of the Nation of Islam, who's known to be very anti-Semitic and has made uh, really offensive comments about gay people and Jewish people, and uh, they just they would not. The leader of the Women's March, Tamika Mallory, would not condemn him 
Um, and so, so too many uh, groups have pulled out um, because of the their inability to fight these anti-Semitism charges, which relates to a lot of the stuff I talk about in my book, Panic Attack, uh, intersectionality, the, the, this theory on the left that you can't just be against one thing, you have to be against all things. And we don't want to, so they don't want to work with you if you're just anti-racist. You also have to be anti-sexist, anti-trans bigotry, anti-sizism, anti anti-everything. Uh, it goes on and on and on. But then somehow they left out in the coalition anti-Semitism. That, that were their, they have nothing or they have much less to say about that. Than, uh, than these other isms, so it ends up being incoherent and it makes the whole group look foolish, and it's sort of sabotage. You know, I, I would often like to see the anti-Trump resistance succeed because I'm I'm not in love with everything Trump does, but uh, there are so often uh, there's so much infighting because of their kind of fealty to the more extreme doctrines on the left, like intersectionality and other things, and it prevents them from being as successful as they could. Um, so my bantha fodder, uh, definitely the controversy over the Gillette ad sort of media, mostly conservative media overtaken over the course of a couple days with uh, this hand wringing over the idea that Gillette engaged in the debate over toxic masculinity. Um, I, I reject all of this. Like I really think that the conservative uh, movement and conservative commentators are, are really not owning the libs. They are owning themselves on this entire argument and undermining their cultural values um, out of a fear of being signaled to. You know, like we often hear about um, the fear of virtue signaling coming from liberals or from corporations. Um, and, and I get that. Like I, I see an ad and I can tell when I'm sort of being messaged to about my values. And, and it makes me a little bit uncomfortable in some cases. Um, I, I don't like it, but sometimes you have to watch uh, the ads that are supposedly virtue signaling to you and ask, well, is this virtuous? And there's nothing in the ad by Gillette that is not virtuous. Um, there's some gray area here and there, but for the most part, um, it is about not victimizing other people, um, uh, being an honorable man, holding other men to account and not excusing bad behavior because that's just what men do. There's been some sort of like, you know, attitude in the reaction that like this paints all men with a, a broad brush. That is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You watch the ad and it's a handful of men looking in the mirror like they, there is a there is an actual point to them looking in the mirror and they hear voices of the news in their head saying things like me too, sexual harassment, toxic masculinity. And these men sort of are like welling up in the eyes a little bit. You know, they're, they're, feeling, they're feeling like under siege by it because they're hearing about it every day in the news. Men are doing this, men are doing that. And they are looking at themselves and going, who am I? Like, what am I? Like, am I part of this problem or am I a good man? Am I a bad man? And that's the whole point. The whole point is we should be looking inward and, and thinking about these things and asking, am I doing the right things or am I what these people are saying? So they mention the term toxic masculinity, but they never seek to de uh, describe what it is. They never seek to define masculinity itself. And for conservatives, it's shocking that they're so upset by this when the ad doesn't make an effort to, one, define masculinity and define what is not. Uh, and they also keep male, male. They keep the masculine, masculine. Like if you really thought Gillette was like doing a progressive ad, they would have brought like, um, you know, trans people or, you know, like gender fluid people into the conversation and like, you know, these people too can use Gillette. But they didn't even do that. It was a very simple um, approach to what it means to be a man. And people just lost their minds over it. So I, I'm just sort of puzzled 
by how like the Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro's of the world will like call this sort of an extension of, uh, of cultural Marxism, which is now just this thing people say to sound smart when they don't actually know uh, what they're talking about. Um, you know, these conservatives believe that our society has lost its, its uh, moral compass, that we are sort of losing sight of ourselves. And so to react poorly to an ad that says, you shouldn't beat up your neighbor's kid, uh, you shouldn't chase a kid down the street and bully them, and that you shouldn't grab uh, buttocks at pool parties, I'm trying not to curse, um, that that is somehow virtue signaling. No, that's actually what your mother told you uh, when you were growing up, um, I think in most cases. So anyways, uh, pretty pretty bad controversy and pretty bad moment for the right, and I hope um, they can do better. That brings us to the end of Bantha Fodder. Uh, Robbie Suave of Reason has been my co-host today. Robbie, thanks so much for filling the seat. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to doing this for a long time. Yeah, well, tell people where they can find you online, follow you on the Twitters and everything, and yep. uh, stay in touch with your work. Yep, follow me on Twitter at uh, Robbie Suave, R-O-B-B-Y-S-O-A-V-E, and uh, go to Reason.com and pre-order my book, uh, Panic Attack, at Amazon.com. You will learn a lot. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89. That's Stephen with a PH underscore Kent 89. And Beltway Banthas at, surprise, Beltway Banthas. We're also on Facebook, and you can email us, uh, BeltwayBanthas at gmail.com. We love to see your mail, get your thoughts on Star Wars politics. And when we get email, we will read it on the show and respond to it. Um, in real time. So it's been a while since we've gotten a good email to read on the show, so I would love to get some of those uh, this week. So send them my way. Uh, that has been episode 68 of Beltway Banthas, a not-so-phantom menace. Uh, we will be back next month with more. Um, if you are behind on sort of the updates for the show, um, we're going to be moving to a monthly show from here on out, not every other week. I don't know if this is permanent. It might just sort of be a fixture of right now while I'm trying to adapt to sort of a new flow of show and a new schedule. Um, but we're going to be doing monthly shows. So the first Thursday of February is when you can expect another episode of Beltway Banthas. Um, I am looking forward to it very much, and we'll be back then. Until then, may the Force be with you. Always. Always.